Connie and Keith Ream were used to seeing their neighbors, Marty and Glenn at Durham, puttering around their country home on a regular basis. Living in a rural area of Michigan, the Reams and the Durhams had gotten to know each other over the years and communicated daily. That's why, when Connie and Keith hadn't seen or heard from their friends in several days, they became concerned. Both Connie and Keith sent text messages and even tried calling the neighbors at home, but there was no response. It was so unlike them not to return their messages that Connie decided to actually show up at their front door. On three separate occasions over the course of two days, Connie knocked on their door. But there was no answer. Only the sound of their yellow lab Shelby barking on the other side. On her last attempt, Connie was fully prepared to force the door open if she had to. She knew in her gut that something was terribly wrong. But as Connie went to turn the handle of the door, she was surprised to find it unlocked. She could never have imagined what she was about to discover inside. Join me now as we take a closer look into what appeared to be a quiet but average relationship between married couple Marty and Glennett Durham. We'll also investigate the entanglement of family affairs that kept the couple isolated and allowed Glenna to hide a dark pool of secrets, which eventually led her to do the unthinkable. A heartbreaking tragedy that left a small village in Michigan rattled to the core, and an unlikely eyewitness that gave a chilling account of what happened. Sand Lake is a tiny village located 27 miles north of Grand Rapids, Michigan. The quaint community of roughly 500 residents sits just off Sand Lake with a modest main street, comprising of a handful of mom-and-pop shops, a gas station, an auto repair shop, post office, hardware store, and a bar. When the locals are looking for a bite to eat, they surprisingly have a few options. There's the hometown pizzeria, Rosie's Ice Cream Parlor, Bernita Mays Cafe, and the Lakeside Inn. A family restaurant with a breakfast menu that includes an enticing plate of French toast stuffed with cream cheese and blueberries and topped with a whopping helping of whipped cream. A sign inside the Lakeside Inn restaurant says, What happens at Lakeside stays at Lakeside. Marty and Glenna had moved to Sand Lake about 15 years prior and were married for about 12 years. They lived about five miles from town, and although their home was in a fairly secluded area, they still had neighbors on either side and across the road from them. The Reams lived across East 128th Street from the Durhams, each with long driveways and sprawling lawns. Marty, who was unemployed, due to a car accident that had left him severely injured, 
liked to make himself useful, and so would often offer to mow his neighbors' lawns and plow out their driveways in the winter, asking for nothing in return. Marty and Glenna were known by their neighbors as big-hearted people who even hosted an annual pig roast, inviting family and neighbors. From the outside looking in, the couple who went everywhere together appeared to be living a simple and happy life. On Monday, May 11th, 2015, after a bit of a rainstorm, Marty Durham mowed their lawn and then went across the street to the Reams residence and offered to mow theirs. When he was finished, he and Glenna spent about an hour hanging out with Connie and her husband, Keith. Glenna had been noticeably upset and shared with the couple that the insurance company who was making payments to Marty after his accident were trying to dispute a claim. In 1995, while driving home from work, Marty was broadsided by another vehicle, causing a near-fatal car accident. Miraculously, he wasn't killed, but the accident left him in a coma for three weeks and caused injury to the frontal lobe of his brain, shattering his pelvis, breaking one of his arms, the left side of his ribs, his jaw, and left eye socket. His lungs also collapsed, and his gallbladder was so damaged it had to be removed. The accident was so serious that he suffered extensive trauma to all his organs, and he needed a shunt to relieve the pressure from his brain. When his family arrived at the hospital, they were told to be prepared for the worst. If he ever came out of the coma, doctors were uncertain what functions he would have. Thankfully, Marty came out of his coma, but it was still uncertain how severe his brain had been damaged and what abilities he would regain as he recovered. Because his jaw had been broken, he required a feeding tube, so Marty wasn't talking. After spending a few more weeks in the hospital, he was transferred to a treatment center for traumatic brain injuries. At the time of his accident, Marty wasn't married to Glenna. He was married to another woman by the name of Christina Keller, who he'd met when he was 19 years old. Christina was only 14 years old when she met Marty in the late 80s at a house party he was hosting. Marty fell instantly head over heels for her and spent the rest of the night hanging out with her and trying to get to know her better. At one point he joked, I'm going to marry you. Because she was so young, marriage was something that was so far from Christina's mind. You know, I wasn't feeling the whole love thing at that time. You know, Marty was 18, 19. I was 14, 15. So love really wasn't in my radar at the time. And uh, he insisted that uh, we were going to get married and he was going to be with me forever. And I thought it was kind of funny. He was fun to hang out with. Super good looking and adorable. And we just kind of hung out that night and partied and played some drinking games. And I left and I wake up to my mom telling me that there's a boy at the door. And literally ever since then, Marty, I seen Marty almost every single day from that day on. He was very persistent. He'd be at my house when I got out of school. He'd be at my house before I go to bed. 
I mean, and, you know, with time, because he was fun and he was cool to hang out with and he didn't give me any pressure. I mean, he didn't pressure me for anything. And it was just fun, fun, fun hanging out with him. And it progressed into a relationship. Christina and Marty's relationship took a more serious turn when Christina became pregnant with their first child at age 16. I was 16 when I got pregnant. So we had been together a year. It was scary, but I just felt like I had enough people behind me to help me. When number two and number three came, yeah, I was a little bit more scared (laughs) because, you know, that happened really fast. My son was born two years later and my daughter was born 11 months after my son. I was 19 by the time I had my third one. Both were still relatively young, but did their best to adapt to their new parental responsibilities. Looking back, Christina doesn't know how they managed. They lived with her mother for a time, who was a single parent of five children herself, Christina being the oldest. While Marty earned money working on cars, Christina finished high school and her mother worked. They each took turns looking after each other's children. I turned 18. My parents were moving out of the house that I had grown up in. So Marty came to live with me at the house and we took over the house after they moved out of town, got married that same year, just before my second son was born. We ended up not being able to afford the house that we were staying in, so we moved in with Marty's parents. And we lived with them for like four years. And it was just kind of like, we all just lived there together. I mean, he had another sister who had a kid and a boyfriend. It was a gigantic house. And we all literally just coexisted like a happy, weird family. His parents were so supportive and so awesome. And then Marty got a new job, which was a better paying job. So then we were able to move out. So we got our first official place together as a family. After they moved out of Marty's parents' home, things seemed to be going well. Marty had a decent paying job, and Christina was focused on raising their three young children. After his accident in 1995, Christina stood by his side throughout the entire recovery. She recalls wheeling him into the brain injury treatment facility, feeling determined that she couldn't leave him there. Taking Marty to that place, pushing him in his wheelchair, There was people that had been incapacitated for 10 to 15 years. So being there, it makes me sad now just to think about it, but it was literally like, so this is what's going to happen to Marty. This is where he's going to live for the rest of his life. Because still at the time, he still really wasn't able to fully talk, fully move. Everything was still in slow motion. He wasn't walking at the time. But to see the people that they put him with, that they placed him with, that had been like that for decades and watching their kids and their family come in, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. I died. And they wouldn't let me spend the night there. So it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And that only lasted four days. I took him out of there against doctor's orders. I couldn't do it. They gave me the whole spiel about this is not the right thing to do. I I can't let him be here. 
So they ended up setting me up with the bed and how to take care of the trach tube, how to take care of the stomach tube. But I took him home. When Marty was finally released into Christina's care, his jaw was wired shut and he required a feeding tube and a tracheostomy tube in his neck. He spent the next two years in outpatient physical therapy and continued to walk with a limp. But as Marty's condition seemed to improve, his relationship with Christina started to deteriorate. He, like, really started getting better and getting as normal as he could. I don't think I ever did get really back to normal. You know, I still was in that mom mode and caregiver mode for him. And then when intimacy issues would come up, I just wasn't, I just didn't love him that way anymore. And I don't know if a lot of it's because of my age at the time. You know, I was young, just a lot to go through. I just, he wanted intimacy. I wasn't feeling the whole intimacy thing. And, and it would cause a lot of hurt on his part. And then it would hurt me. And it, but then we would just kind of try to ignore it for a while. You know, we were together for four years after his accident. First year was really busy. So we would did our best for the three, four years after that, but I was getting more distant physically. The more I would get distant, the more he would want from me. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it and it hurt me. Cause God, I just love Marty so much. I always just want him to be okay. But the physical, the, the emotional, the love, love, wasn't there. My deep, true love was always there. My in love wasn't anymore. Five years after the car accident, the couple divorced in 2000. Christina recalls it being one of the most difficult things she felt she had to do. That was a terrible, terrible day in my history. He took it really hard. He took it really hard. It was hard on all of us, most of all him. It was a really tough year trying to go through the divorce with him being so angry and so hurt. He just did everything that he could to prolong it. Just didn't want to let it go didn't want to let me go and it just made it even harder for me but I couldn't you know I'd already made my decision it wasn't going to change how I felt inside I didn't want to do that to either one of us I was just hoping to just rip the band-aid off and and move on but he didn't I don't know that he ever really did I think what I did to him was traumatic he took it very hard. It was at that point 
that Glenna entered the picture. In fact, to be completely accurate, Glenna had actually been in the picture before Christina. As teenagers, Glenna and Marty had been romantically involved prior to Marty meeting Christina. At the time, Glenna, who was 17 years old, was married to another man named Robert. But the affair between Glenna and Marty didn't seem to last very long. After Marty met Christina, she became his sole focus. Glenna, however, hadn't moved on so easily. Although she remained married to Robert and had two children with him, Eric and Laura, she still held a flame for Marty. Marty's older sister, Donna, recalls the first time she became aware of Glenna. Her daughter, Laura, was told growing up that Marty might be her father. My kids were about the same age as Laura, and she was about 15 at the time. Well, Laura had showed up at my door and told me the story that she was always told that Marty was her father. And I said, well, you know, there's trust for that. We'll, we'll get some answers for you. So, you know, of course, I went to my brother, like, what the hell is going on? And he told me. He said there was a chance. He was 16 at the time. It was, you know, before he met Christina, when all that happened. She was married to Bob. But then 15 years later, you know, all of a sudden, it's right there again. So they did the test, and of course, it was Bob's child. So they kind of put that to us. That's how she came back in the picture. And when I first met her, she had blue hair. Blue hair wasn't a big, you know, it wasn't a huge thing at the time. Now it's everywhere. But back then, it was like, oh, this girl's got blue hair. And, and then, you know, Laura says, well, yeah, she has blue hair, and she always has a bottle of hot dam in her purse. Hot dam is a snops. It's an alcohol. And it's pretty potent. I mean, especially we were, you know, we were younger, and we were of age, but. Oh, this is a great first impression. Then, you know, I noticed that she had a tattoo on her hand with Marty on it. And she must have got it when she was married, or either that or she got it before she got married to Bob. I figured, you know, this chick must be crazy about my brother. She's never forgot him. It didn't take long before the two were living together. Glenna was still married to Robert but after a few years, finally got a divorce and married Marty. The two appeared to be happy together, but it would never be the same as it was when they were teenagers. Their lives were complicated now. Both had ex-spouses and children from other marriages. At first, Christina remembers getting along with Glenna. She was nice to me. I had two sons in football. I had to go to those games. They went to those games. We had conversations. So I had a year of decent relationship with Glenna. She was braiding my daughter's hair. She was doing nice things, you know. And then I can't say exactly what changed on their end. I just know things started to change on my end when I would make a phone call to Marty, like I always did, and I could hear her complaining in the background. And then, okay, so then that would happen a couple of times. And then the kids would come home and go, man, mom, I just wish Glenna would just stop talking crap about you. So then that would go on and I would have a conversation with Marty. What is going on? Why all of a sudden am I the enemy? 
He said, I don't know. She just got her own issues. Okay. So then we blew it off for a little bit. Then Marty would like kind of scoot away from me a couple areas. So then they weren't sitting next to me. Okay, whatever. You know, we weren't smoking cigarettes together at whatever time. And okay, whatever. You know, I'm here for my kids, not for drama. That's always how I've lived my entire life. I don't do drama. I don't cause drama. You know, so then as time would continually go on, I would try to make a phone call to Marty. Then it would be, oh, I can't really talk right now. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I need to talk about Justin or I need to talk about Jessica. Well, I can't do it right now. And then he'd just blow me off. Now I'd try to call again. She would answer the phone. And I don't, I'm not without swearing, but she's like, oh, your effing F wife is on the effing phone. I'm like, geez, oh, peace. What is going on? Jessica, Christina and Marty's daughter, came to dread her visits with her father because of her stepmother. She reported that Glenna would openly express her distaste for her when she was as young as eight years old. She had hurt my daughter, not physically, but just just would say terrible things to my daughter. You look just like your mom. You're a slut just like your mom. My daughter was done. She was like, I'm not going to dad's anymore. Well, then I couldn't force her. Like, I physically couldn't pick her up and make her go to her dad's. My son would still come here. She just wouldn't go to her dad's on, on her weekend. And the longer that they didn't talk, the harder that it got, you know? And then it just, my daughter didn't see her dad for, you know, almost five years. Marty and Christina's other two sons remember a similar strain in their relationship with their father because of Glenna. Christina recalls one time getting a call from their oldest son, Justin, in the middle of the night. She was causing so much trouble for my sons that lived there that my oldest son, Justin, just couldn't take it anymore and it would cause fights, literal fights, like my son being kicked out of the house because he just couldn't take her mouth anymore. While Marty became somewhat distant with his children, he also started to isolate himself from other members of the family from time to time. At one point, he stopped talking to Donna for several months and stopped talking to his other sister, Vicky, for close to five years. Donna recalls how Glenna was a contributing factor to the conflicts Marty had with his family. She helped keep the drama alive. That's where the pullback was. She kept things going by picking and picking. She went behind the scenes a lot. It was sneaky the way it happened because we were a really close family, so we were never going to let him out of our reach too much because, you know, even though Vicky and Marty hadn't spoken in years, he knew everything about her. You know, if he didn't love her, he certainly wouldn't care what she was doing. Glenna knew that. She would pick at him, though. She would make situations a lot worse. And she would handle them more like children instead of them being adults. In 2010, Marty's health started to slide, and his memory was getting worse. That's when Glenna became his legal caregiver, despite having medical issues of her own. Glenna began receiving $3,000 a month for taking care of Marty, and he received another $1,100 a month in disability. To make additional income, the two also started selling their prescribed medication and made an extra $800 a month. Described as frugal, Laura, Glenna's daughter, reported that her stepfather would try to save money 
by doing things like turning down the heat and keeping the lights turned off. Marty had always been good managing money and had been diligent about paying his bills on time. Watching their pennies meant that the couple was able to take what was ever left after paying their bills to spend on leisurely activities, and both had their distinct interests. Marty loved the outdoors and was an avid hunter and fisherman. Along with having many guns and crossbows he kept locked in a safe, Marty would also pay to go on hunting trips. He would hunt wild boar, which could cost about $800, and he would also hunt ram, which could cost up to $2,000. He also owned a pickup truck, a Dodge Charger, a Jeep Cherokee, and a jet ski. Recently, he also decided to invest some money into fixing up what the family referred to as his man cave in the garage. Glenna, on the other hand, enjoyed playing the odds with gambling. She would purchase $50 to $100 worth of scratch tickets several times a week. She also would frequently visit casinos in the area several times a month and Marty would often accompany her, though he wasn't interested in playing. Marty's older brother, Dan, recalls becoming aware of Glenna's love for gambling during a time when the couple was visiting him in Montana. Glenna apparently consistently insisted they stop at various casinos, and Dan remembers witnessing her putting $100 bills at a time in a slot machine. When Marty would approach Glenna, she would tell him she was putting in 20s. We always had to wait for Glenna to finish gambling. She took longer than anyone else, Dan said. It was no secret to Marty or anyone else that knew Glenna how much she enjoyed spending time at the casinos. What was a secret was how much she was spending. Although they always split paying the bills, it later became apparent that Marty wasn't aware if payments were being made. Each month, they would organize their payments items or hunting trips Marty was saving for together by placing cash into different envelopes and putting them in a safe. One time, several friends and family members recall Glenna telling them that she had put $600 in an envelope for payment, but then accidentally threw out the envelope in the garbage. Some question whether she had really thrown the money out or whether she had spent it at the casino. At one point, it became apparent that Glenna had missed some payments on Marty's car, and it was at risk of being repossessed. Another time, Marty attempted to buy another truck from an acquaintance and was shocked to discover that their credit rating wasn't good anymore. A few days prior to May 11, 2015, Marty mentioned to their neighbor Keith that a real estate agent had come by and offered to sell their home. Keith remembers Marty being confused by it. A month earlier in April, a family member discovered that Marty's home had been listed in the paper as a foreclosure sale. My cousin Sherry, her daughter, lives up in Nuego, and in the paper they put where houses are being foreclosed. Well, Sherry had been going through it, and she seen my brother's name on there, so she called her mom. And then, you know, my Aunt Edie called my mother. And then, of course, my mom called Marty. And they had the paper by that time, so Marty drove over to my sister's and picked the paper up. The following day, Marty's mother received a text from him 
saying that Glenna was sorting it out and they had printed the wrong address. I think he believed Glenna, you know, when she said, no, there must be some mistake. I'll get to the bottom of it. So he thought she was handling it. It didn't even cross his mind that it could be true. He's like, okay, this is a typo. Because if he was losing his house, he would have did something about it, you know? So he never had any type of knowledge that he was that far into losing his house. What seemed abundantly clear to anyone that knew Glenna and Marty was they kept wads of cash in their home, along with firearms. Because of the car accident settlement and all the toys Marty owned, it was also assumed that the couple was doing quite well financially, and it would often be joked about in social gatherings. People also seemed to be aware of the various ongoing feuds the couples had with family members, neighbors, and friends. Despite what appeared to be a loving and quiet life between the couple, there also seemed to be quite a bit of drama in their lives. At the end of a hard day, it's always nice to be able to crawl into bed. So imagine if you could make that moment extra special every night by getting into your bed made with luxury bed sheets. Since ordering our bed sheets from brooklinen.com, we get to experience that incredible feeling of fancy hotel sheets every night. Started by husband and wife, Brooklinen Sheets has a simple mission. Bring five-star hotel quality sheets to everyday life at an affordable price. And that's what they've done. And if you need help while ordering your perfect bed sheets online, a chat with someone from their customer service team is only a click away. You really do get the VIP treatment with Brooklinen. From the moment you place your order to that amazing moment when you finally get to slip into your new luxury bed sheets. My Brooklinen sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on. Now it's time for your upgrade. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code MADNESS at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code MADNESS at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code MADNESS. Brooklinen, these really are the best sheets ever. If you've been thinking about getting a Simply Safe home security system, but have been waiting for the holidays when all the tech deals come out, you've made the smart move. Because right now, we can get you a great deal on Simply Safe. Order today, and you can get 25% off any new Simply Safe system. That's an amazing deal. They rarely do anything like this, but they're doing it for our listeners. Simply Safe is great protection for your home and family. They never make you sign a contract. There's no hidden fees. And with Simply Safe, Around-the-clock professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. We love our Simply Safe system. We've been using it for a while now. It was so easy to set up. Plus, it looks cool. And they're always getting great reviews. CNET, PC Mag, and Wirecut all say Simply Safe is the best security system there is. Protect your home today and get a great deal on home security. Go to simplysafe.com/madness and save 25% off your Simply Safe system. And please, make sure you use that URL so they know we sent you. And hurry, this deal ends November 26. You don't want to miss it. 
That's simplysafe.com slash madness. Simplysafe.com slash madness. Back to Monday, May 11. After Marty had mowed the Reams lawn, and he and Glenna spent about an hour talking to Connie and Keith, they then left and returned home around 9 p.m. The next day on Tuesday, May 12th, Keith texted Marty at 8.26 a.m., asking him how he was feeling. He got no response. He then sent several other texts throughout the day, and even called Marty and still got no response. According to Keith, it was highly unusual for Marty not to respond in a timely manner. They messaged each other daily, and Marty would always respond right away. Later that evening, Connie Ream decided to head over to their home, just to make sure everything was alright. Nobody answered. She then texted Glenna, and still got no response. On Wednesday, May 13th at 7.30am, Connie decided to head over again to their house and knock on the door. Again, nobody answered. Only the sound of Shelby, their dog, barking. On the same day at 4.30pm, after Connie was finished working, she stopped once again and knocked. There was still no answer. On her previous visits to the home, she checked their windows and doors and found them all to be locked. This time when she checked, she found that the front door was unlocked. When she walked into their home, she was greeted by their dog and noticed immediately that the living room that was normally kept neat and tidy was in complete disarray. When she walked further in and looked to the right where the couple's bedroom was located, she spotted Glenna. She appeared to be sitting in a prone position at the foot of the bed, covered with a blanket up to her head. As she walked closer, she saw Marty, who was lying on the floor. Both were covered in blood. Coincidentally, emergency services were already in the area, responding to a fire that had broken out down the street. Connie immediately rushed over to the firefighters and explained the bloody scene she had just walked into. After firefighters entered the home and saw what appeared to be two deceased people, they quickly backed out, realizing they had just walked into a crime scene. It didn't take long for law enforcement to arrive at the Durham home. While one detective spoke to Connie Ream outside the residence, he overheard the other detective who was inside the home dispatching paramedics. Glenna Durham was actually alive. The detective standing inside thought he observed Glenna breathing. He went to place his hands on her wrist to check her pulse. Her eyes suddenly popped wide open and she yelled out, What are you doing? Marty! While the detective attempted to comfort her, Paramedics arrived and immediately placed her on a stretcher, 
and took her in an ambulance for treatment in Grand Rapids. Tragically, Marty had not been as fortunate. He had been shot five times and was declared dead at the scene. The autopsy revealed later that he had been shot once in the back, once in the forearm, and three more times at close range in his chest. He was found wearing only his underwear. Glenna had been shot twice behind her ear, but her injuries were surprisingly minor. The crime scene was especially confusing. Between physical evidence and Connie's testimony, there was no sign of forced entry, and nothing appeared to be stolen. The grounds were inspected by a forensic team as well as dogs that searched around the perimeter of the property. No out-of-the-ordinary footprints or tire tracks were found. What was particularly unusual was where Glenna Durham was found. After inspecting the crime scene, blood stains found on an armchair made it appear as though she had actually been shot while sitting in the living room. Also found on the floor was a pillow with two bullet holes in it, suggesting Glenna had been shot in the head through the pillow. However, when Connie entered the home, she had found Glenna sitting in an upright position at the foot of their bed covered with a blanket. Then when firefighters arrived, she was lying on the floor. There was a broken lamp inside the entrance of the home. A six-round Ruger revolver was found right in front of the bloodied armchair, including two empty shell casings. A bowl of spaghetti and a plate of garlic bread sat on the kitchen table. One empty shell casing was found in front of the doorway to the bedroom. Four empty shell cases were located in the bedroom near where Marty lay. They also found a gun holster and an ammunition belt sitting on the bed that had hollow point and jacketed bullets in it. It didn't take long for the news of what had happened in the home to start circulating around family and friends. Some of the relatives of the couple started arriving at their home, but were kept at the end of the driveway as detectives and forensics collected evidence. I found out on the phone that nobody had been able to get a hold of Marty, and then through Facebook, my nephew had gotten this message, it's sorry to hear about your dad. So they were all flying up there. And I was here, and I didn't quite know what was going on. We just knew something bad had happened. So when they went up there, and we found out that Glenna was alive, and they were taking her to the hospital, my son and, and his girlfriend and, and myself, we went rushing up to the hospital. This is devastating. We don't know if Marty alive. My sister-in-law is on her way to the hospital. And when we went to the hospital that day, at the emergency room, it was all shut down, and it's never shut down. It had windows were covered with stuff, and there was a security guard there. And I said, you guys have my sister-in-law. And they said, well, it's locked down right now. We can't let you in. And then I had ran into Glenna's son, Eric, and his wife. And, you know, I left them with a hug. 
Later that evening, Marty and Christina's children, who had arrived earlier, were granted permission to enter the home to get Shelby their dog and Bud their parrot. As they looked around, they found a manila envelope in the middle of the living room floor with personal written on it. They also found a plastic bag in Glenna's sock drawer with more than 30 unpaid bills, which they handed over to investigators. Detectives quickly got to work, canvassing the neighborhood, interviewing anyone that might have heard or seen anything. A few neighbors stated that they had heard gunshots in the early morning of Wednesday, May 13th, but couldn't be sure of the exact time. They also said it wasn't unusual to hear gunshots in the area, as people regularly shot their guns for target practice or killing wildlife in their backyards. A list was soon drawn up for people to interview. Friends and family all testified that the couple had disputes with various people, but couldn't imagine who would want them dead. Those close to the Durham's suspected it had to be someone that the couple knew. As Marty was diligent about locking the doors, even when they were home, and wouldn't just let anyone in. After Glenna recovered from her wounds in the hospital, she still remained in a state of confusion, telling the detective she had no recollection of what had happened after the weekend leading up to Wednesday. Her last memory was getting a flu shot and preparing for Mother's Day. In a very emotional state, Glenna told the detective, I did not shoot my husband. I'd be better off divorcing him and leaving him. I know for a fact I would not kill my husband. When she was asked about her familiarity with guns, she said she would go with Martin when he hunted, but would fall asleep in the woods or read a book in the car. She said she knew how to shoot guns, but didn't like it. She remembered using a black powder rifle and that they were too long for her. She also talked about shooting pistols on occasion at the home on the back deck. During the investigation, both Marty and Glenna's phones were forensically analyzed. Although both had appeared to be wiped clean, they did discover a search that had been performed on Glenna's phone early Wednesday morning. The search was for a manual for the Ruger revolver, the exact make and model of the murder weapon used to kill Marty and shoot Glenna. Glenna's phone also showed that she had sent a few texts to her mother before Connie had discovered them. Glenna's last text was sent to her mother at 4.48 a.m., on Wednesday morning saying, I'm sorry. The last time Marty used his phone was on Monday night at 9.30 p.m. and it showed he'd been searching for lawnmowers. Inside the manila envelope Marty and Christina's children had found were three more envelopes, all with letters inside. They were addressed to Glenna's children from her first marriage, Eric and Laura, and the other letter was to her ex-husband Robert. 
In all three letters, she was apologizing. One letter said, I'm sorry, but I love you. So sorry I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so. Please forgive me, you're one of the best things I ever had. Love, Mom. The letter to her ex-husband asked her to look after their children. When Glenna was asked why she had written letters that appeared to be suicide notes, she didn't know. She said she had written similar letters in the past. She didn't know why she would have wrote a letter like that to her ex-husband. She said she would have written for him to kiss her ass. When she was asked why she had sent an apology text to her mother, her mom Jean, who was present for the interview, indicated it was because Glenna had bailed on showing up at her house. A handwritten analysis later showed that the letters had indeed been written by Glenna. During the interview with the detective, Glenna stated again that she loved her husband and that she didn't understand. She said she wished she was not the one awake because she wanted to be there for Marty. She continued on to say that when she met Marty, he wanted to die. She didn't care that he didn't have anything or that he was bossy. She stated that she wished they would have just let her die. The detective then asked her, if that's why she turned the gun on herself, because she felt that way. She responded by saying, she didn't feel that way until she woke up. I did not kill him. I wouldn't kill him because he was all I had. Surprisingly, Glenna's hands were not tested for gunpowder residue and the DNA found on the gun was from various people who investigators had to work to exclude his suspects. Tests did, however, show that Glenna's DNA was among the different samples found. In looking into the couple's financial situation, it was discovered that a notice had been listed declaring the house was going to be foreclosed in a sheriff's sale on May 13th, and the address wasn't wrong. Papers from the bank addressed to Glenna and not Marty in February, indicated future foreclosure unless $5,000 was paid. It's important to note it was addressed to Glenna. Her name wasn't on the deed to the house. Foreclosure papers had been sent again to the Durham residence on April 28th. Marty's executor informed detectives that the mortgage hadn't been paid in the past year. Marty also owed about $11,000 on a credit card and $1,200 for a jet ski he had purchased. None of this seemed feasible to those who knew Marty because they knew him as the kind of man that would go without heat or electricity before he missed a mortgage payment. Nobody could understand if he had known about the foreclosure, why had he made so many recent upgrades to their home? Just a few months prior, Marty had built a new deck on the back of their house. He'd also fixed up his man cave and had repainted one of the bathrooms two days prior to being murdered. All of this suggested he knew nothing. When detectives asked Glenna about it, she said he did know and that they were planning to move. She said if they wanted to keep the house, 
they just had to pay $5,000. She said in the end, they decided they were going to pay it, but then a realtor came by, offering to get them a better financing deal. In speaking with family, friends, neighbors, and Glenna herself, the couple often joked about killing each other in front of others. Marty's daughter remembers Glenna saying on several occasions that she couldn't wait for Marty to die so she could have all of his stuff. She said Glenna sometimes would laugh, but would sometimes sound serious. When detectives asked Glenna about the verbal threats to Marty, she admitted that it happened from time to time between them, but they were just joking around. He would say he was going to hang her up a tree. Then she would say she would go on a cruise and bump him off the side. Donna remembers the couple's banter making people feel uncomfortable. When my brother would come, we'd just visit on my front porch, and but no matter where we were, Every time we were leaving, she was like, I'm going to leave him here. You know, and it was always the same answer. Just leave him here then. You know, we're good with that. Not only to me, to any woman. She would pick a woman out that would be talking to Marty, and she'd be like, oh, you want him? You can have him. That type of thing where she would always, like, joke around, but she wasn't joking around. And that would give people the creeps. She made it hard to be around him was some of the things that she would say would make people very uncomfortable. According to Glenna's daughter, Laura, Marty could be controlling at times, not wanting Glenna to go anywhere without him. Apparently, at one point early on in their marriage, Glenna had left Marty for a time and had gone back to live with her ex-husband. This caused Marty to feel insecure at times, and he would often question her when they got into arguments if she planned to go back to Robert. However, out of all the interviews conducted by detectives, not one person claimed to have ever witnessed the two being violent towards each other. For the most part, they seemed content with their life together. As degrading as the two could be towards one another, their threats to each other were just jokes. After all the evidence had been collected and all the interviews had been completed, still no arrests were made. Glenna continued to proclaim her innocence and insisted she remembered nothing about the shooting or the days leading up to it. A year passed and no progress appeared to be made in the case. That is, until an eyewitness came forward from the most unlikeliest of sources. After Christina and Marty divorced in 2000, Marty took custody of a parrot Christina had purchased while they were together. An African gray parrot she named Bud as soon as he had hatched, and she loved him like a family member. But after the divorce, Christina was unable to convince Marty to let her have Bud. She suspected it was one way for him to punish her for leaving him. Glenna wasn't fond of the bird, and Christina even offered to pay Marty for his return. But Marty insisted on keeping him. After Marty was murdered, Bud was reunited with Christina. Bud had been in this cage and had not really been physically touched probably in the 15 years that he was with Marty. 
I mean, he got attention, but he was never really took out of his cage. Bud can be destructive. So I think it was just easier for Marty to not deal with Bud being destructive, getting down on the floor and doing bad things. Everybody was afraid of him. I mean, I think there was even a little note on Bud's cage that don't touch, stay away from the bird. Because they just assumed he was just so aggressive and just this terrible, terrible, mean, mean bird. They brought Bud home to me. He opened up that little dog carrier that they had him in. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And it was like an old friend, a family that you hadn't seen in a long time. He literally scurried up to me, up to my arm. And I hugged him. It was probably the first time they had been physically touched other than my kids taking him out of the cage in 15 years. He knew me. There's a little sound I used to do in Bud's ear when I had him 15 years before that, now 18 years. A little sound I would do in his ear. And, and I did that to him in his ear. And he just... He nuzzled me. I think we both cried. It was intense. He was like, I'm home. He was happy. One day, weeks after Marty's murder, Christina overheard Bud repeating what sounded like an argument between two people. At first, she didn't take much notice. He said other things that sounded like phrases Marty would say. He would say Shelby. He had a dog named Shelby. But come here, Shelby. And then you'd hear a squeak, squeak, squeak of a squeaky toy. And then the bud would go, good girl, good girl. And then he'd go, squeak, squeak. Get it, girl. If you could close your eyes and you're visualizing Marty throwing a squeaky toy to his dog, rubbing her head and going, good girl, good girl. And then you hear squeak, squeak and go get it. And then dogs coming back. Good girl. So there was a lot of things that Marty was was coming out of Bud. Then she would hear what sounded like an argument again. The bird was clearly speaking in two distinct voices. One of a female and the other a male. Shocked by what she was hearing, Christina knew she had to capture it on camera. Most disturbingly, the repetition of the argument ended with the parrot yelling out in a man's voice, Don't expletive shoot. Christina hadn't shared the video with authorities, likely out of concern of how she might have been perceived, but she did show it to Marty's sister, Donna. I sent it to her. I'm like, listen to this bird. Holy crap. And then we would go back and forth. She's like, oh my God, do you hear what he's saying? I'm like, not really. She was like, he's saying F you white boy. And I said, well, who would he be saying that to? I've heard her say that to 
Margie before, calm, a white boy. We would just go back and forth. And then she's like, oh, my God, Christina, he's saying don't shoot. I know that it chilled me to the bone when I would hear him say it. When Christina first sent that video to me, I couldn't get through it all at first. It's not a very long one, but I, I shut it off and I listened to it again and it was really disturbing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, it was almost like my brother's last moments here on earth. I just tried to slow it down and try to find words and maybe find something. And I always thought that, you know, it was pretty unique that Bud told Marty's story. But it was so disturbing to me, I didn't want my parents to hear it. And I had never told them about that. I hung on to it for at least three, four months. And I would play it every now and then. I always knew it was important. As Marty's family was being interviewed by local news on any updates on the case, Donna was surprised to hear her mother mention the video of Bud to the news anchor. It was just two of them that came, the cameraman and the newsman. And they had their interview. And at the end of it, my mother said, well, my daughter has a video of Bud. And I was shocked because I didn't know if she knew, but she had found out. So I played it for him, and I couldn't believe it that this bird had actually said all this. I didn't know it would get nationwide. Later that evening, Christina was shocked to hear Bud being mentioned on the evening news. I go to making something for dinner or whatever, and I turn and I hear Bud. But I'm looking out in the living room. Bud's not making a noise. Bud's on TV. Like, why is Bud on TV? So I called Donna. I'm like, why is Bud on TV? She's like, oh my God, Christina, I didn't know they were going to air it. I just showed the news guy, just wanted him to see what he thought about it. And it just went nuts from there. In trying to find out more about African gray parrots and their abilities, we decided to get in contact with someone who works closely with birds we managed to get in touch with someone who is internationally known as the Bird Whisperer. Jess James has studied and traveled all over the world for more than 20 years, studying, training, and dealing with behavioral issues of parrots. We asked him if he could tell us about the intelligence level and speaking abilities specifically related to an African gray parrot. intelligence of a four-year-old child and they never lose that intelligence level whether they're two years old or whether they're 60 or 50 years old so you, you basically are the mother or the father of a four-year-old very naughty child for the rest of its life and this is what people don't understand they are extremely intelligent but they're known for their speaking abilities more than the other parrots they speak far better, far more clearly, far more in context and repetition. So if they hear something, they will repeat it back. 
whether it's a telephone ringing or somebody swearing or the wife saying, I love you, you know, they will put it back into that context. They are that intelligent. They can sense the situation and they will jump on the bandwagon towards it. They know a loving situation and they know a violent situation. They can feel the vibes in your body. They can feel the situation. Amazingly, the recording stirred enough media attention that investigators started looking further into Glenna's involvement in her husband's death. Michigan woman is convicted of first-degree murder for shooting and killing her husband in a case where the main witness was a bird. That foul-mouthed parrot that apparently witnessed his owner's murder and mimics what may have been Martin Durham's last words. A possible murder witness might be asked to take the stand, or rather the perch, if Michigan prosecutors decide to press charges. A little over a year after Marty was killed, Glenna was charged with his murder. After the second day of preliminary testimony on the case, the judge determined there was enough evidence to send Glenna Durham to trial for the murder of her husband. As Glenna was being escorted out of the courtroom in shackles, she spontaneously yelled out in the courtroom, That little expletive did it, pointing towards Marty and Christina's son, Justin. When we asked Christina why she might have said that, Christina responded by saying, He's my oldest son. Her and Justin have never gotten along because he defended my name all the time. Him and her didn't have a very good relationship. They never did. She just hates my son. Always has hated my son. He didn't take her stuff. He didn't let her defame his mother. He stood up for his mom. At the beginning of the trial, Christina and Donna were shocked to learn that they were not allowed in the courtroom. They had been subpoenaed by Glenna's lawyer, even though they had no intention of calling them as witnesses for the defense. When I was kicked out of that courtroom, I was devastated. Devastated. You know, I felt like she was trying to take his whole family out of there. That was the only reason why she did. We had nothing for the case. I wasn't even spoke to by her attorneys, either one of them. They didn't want to speak to me. I had personally went up to the one that subpoenaed me and asked him. And he said, well, if I need you, I'll let you know. So it was all out of spite. It was all a game to her. It was, you know, a, a big game. Like, she thought she could take us all out of the courtroom and nobody would be in there. So it was really hard. Throughout the trial, Glenna maintained her innocence, with the defense insisting either another relative or a complete stranger had broken into the house and murdered Marty and attempted to kill Glenna also. But the motive was unclear. If it had been for money, why had nothing been stolen? There were thousands of dollars in cash left in the house. Why had there been no forced entry into the home? And how could they have gotten into the safe where Marty kept all of his guns and ammunition? The prosecution argued that Marty had discovered the financial ruin Glenna's love for gambling had put them in, and a heated argument ignited. 
photos scattered around the floor, and the letters to her children and ex-husband suggested that Glenna had spent time reminiscing and writing apologies to her family, in between killing Marty and putting a pillow to her head, and pulling the trigger on herself. Also, there was the search on Glenna's phone for the manual on how to load and shoot the gun that was used to murder Marty and shoot her. Although Glenna had been shot in the head twice, her injuries were minor. There were only fragments found in her skull, and no surgery was ever required. We asked Justin Rimmel, who served in the United States Marine Corps and served in Iraq, to talk about the different bullets that were found on Marty and Glenna's bed in the gun belt. His experience working with guns professionally and recreationally allowed for him to become very familiar with various types of guns, ammunition, and what kind of damage they cause. We asked him to talk about the different bullets that were found on Marty and Glenna's bed in the gun belt. They were 22 LR, hollow points and jacketed. Again, the gun that was used was a Ruger revolver. For the particular shots on Marty, I would have to say that the one in the back, the one in the forearm, and possibly even two in the chest, he could have survived. The 22 round compared to a hollow point, they're very, very different rounds. The hollow point, you're only going to need probably one round to kill somebody. So if that would have been one of the chest wounds, that would have killed him because when a hollow point goes in and it makes initial impact with anything substantially solid, including bone or even really tough muscle tissue, and it would have to be super tough muscle tissue, it expands and it goes out like shrapnel. So all these little pieces of bullet are acting like the old style grenades that you see in the movies. And it's just going out a little bit everywhere. So that's why with hollow points, when you see an entry wound, it's usually about the size of a, maybe a dime. But the exit wound, depending on the length of travel, is going to be significantly bigger because it expands with that shrapnel effect. Now, the 22 round, he could easily take three 22 rounds, obviously, depending on where he was shot at, because the 22 round especially in a revolver, is it's a very weak velocity. It's a very light bullet. It's a very small bullet. Usually what kills people when they are shot with 22s, when the bullet makes that initial impact, it doesn't go all the way through. Like you would take two sheets of paper and set them six inches apart. If you push a pencil through both those pieces of paper, you know, if they're stationary, it's going to go straight through in one path. But with a 22 round, it's going to bounce around. So if she would have hit the right spot, that 22 bullet could have possibly just kept bouncing off of bones and just literally shredding some of his organs on the inside with one tiny little bullet. But usually, and a lot of times, the 22 round will often get, get lodged in bone because it's just not that powerful. But if you have a dollar impact at the end of a 22 barrel, it's going to even soften that impact more. So there's, there would have been, say, like a likely chance that the bullet would have just been lodged. So the difference between that round and the hollow point 
no matter what caliber, the difference would be devastating when you actually come to the end result of the shot fired. We then asked Justin to explain why Glenna might have sustained such minor injuries, considering she had been shot in the head. Keep in mind, a pillow was placed between her head and the barrel of the gun. It might not seem like it, but that right there just might be enough to soften that impact to the point where the jacket's not going to penetrate her skull fully. It's going to look like a puncture wound. Now, don't get me wrong. It's going to bleed profusely because that's what head wounds do. It's no matter if you get a cut above your eye or if you take a puncture wound, it's, it's going to bleed profusely because the blood doesn't know what kind of wound it is, obviously. Now, if she would have put the barrel right up against her head, there is a good chance that the results would have been different. It probably would have fully penetrated her skull. And even if it wouldn't have penetrated her skull, some form of bone fragment probably would have. And if the bullet did penetrate her skull, there's a good chance it it would have just bounced around in there for a little bit as well. Now, if she would have done that with a hollow point, no questions asked. There's, I'd say, a 95% chance that she would have died. We asked Justin's opinion on if he thought Glennon knew the difference between the two different rounds. So when it comes to the different rounds and whether or not she knew what she was doing, you have a 50-50 chance. She either knew exactly what she was doing or it was just blind, dumb luck. She was just loading up the revolver and she didn't know which rounds were which. And if you think about it in the form of like a heat of passion killing, then either the bullets would already be previously loaded Uh, for some other reason, or they were loaded in a hurry, in which case your percentages go more towards the dumb luck. The thing about that is, too, is if she knew exactly what she was doing, she knew exactly about what those two different rounds would do after impact, I can't tell you that many people who are still going to take that chance, to be perfectly honest with you. If it were me, I would say that She probably did want to end her life. I'm not 100% sure why she would choose the back of the head as opposed to a temple. That's actually a really intriguing question right there. You do not see that kind of thing. The pillow can be easily explained by it'll muffle the gunshot. So, you know, if if she was in a place where she might have had neighbors or something like that, she would have used the pillow to where it wouldn't have been as loud. And a 22 isn't that loud anyway, so that's my personal opinion on it. The defense argued that Glenna, who did not like using guns and wasn't familiar with them, would not be able to learn how to load and shoot one in the time indicated by the search on her phone. You're going to have to decide, is that realistic, that a woman who didn't like to shoot guns anyways went on this website for basically three minutes and eight seconds and was able to figure out how to reload a revolver all while everything else that's going on in the house is taking place. Two of the last confusing pieces to the puzzle included the door to the Durham's home, which had been locked and then unlocked on her final visit. Also, how Glenna's body had managed to move from the armchair where she was shot to the bedroom sitting in an upright position against the foot of the bed, to then lying down. 
After 10 days of hearing witness testimony, the jury took nine hours to deliberate. They rested the case and we waited. The jury was out for a while, it felt like forever. What is going to happen? Are they going to convict her? Is they going to find a way she's going to walk out of there? It was the worst time, the worst feeling that I've ever felt in my life. Watching my family just wait and wait. And then when we all were gathered in there for the hearing to be read, it was read so quiet that I didn't catch on until she was convicted of the gun charge that I realized that she was convicted of first-degree premeditated murder. And then it, it was all lost. The tears, it was devastating just to even find no happiness. It was just a relief. It was a relief of, it's over. She's going to prison for the rest of her life. And she won't be getting out. Glenna was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Those who loved Marty dearly may have finally got the justice they had been waiting for, but no amount of time would ever bring back the man they loved. Donna explains the rage she felt knowing that the woman her brother had trusted with his life took it away. I've been mad in my life, but I've never experienced rage before. And rage is a really ugly emotion to have. But I felt rage. I felt like I could probably strangle her with my bare hands. I used to sleep with my window open, hoping that, you know, she would show up. Spent a whole year out there. It was just a lot of rage. My mom felt it, and she didn't understand it. She had never felt rage before in her life, and she's 76 years old at the time. And I had to explain to her, it's just rage, Mom. You know, you, you hear people say, you know, you do that, if somebody kills my brother, I'm going to kill them. When you, when you get that feeling where you actually, you could, that's really scary. I mean, common sense always brings you back in, and you realize you can't do it, but you truly want to. I wanted to end her life. I didn't, I didn't want her out there hurting anybody else. We asked Christina why she felt it was important to continue telling Marty's story even after the trial and conviction of Glenna Durham. Because it's tragic. He gave all his trust and faith in a woman that he loved and cared about. He trusted her. She took on the responsibility to care for him and to help him, and in turn, what? She lost everything behind his back, and he died for it. Died for her mistake. It's not fair. It's not right, it's not fair for a man who's fought for the last 25 years to live, to be killed for a unnecessary lie. There's no reason Marty should be dead right now. None.
We asked Donna if she could share some of her early childhood memories of Marty growing up. My mom and my dad had five children, and I was right in the middle with Marty being the younger one. We got along great. He was the best brother, closeness-wise and getting along-wise. He was very easy to get along with. My youngest sister and him, they had a different relationship. They were the ones that were always play fighting, you know, just being kids. And I was always the mediator, you know, you guys knock it off. (laughs) They loved each other. It was all good fun, sibling fun. Marty was like always the same growing up. He just, he was one of the quieter kids. He had his little pack of friends, but everybody in the neighborhood knew him. He was always on his bike riding, going down to the river fishing. There was a time where him and his buddy, we have a river that goes through our city, and we have a dam down towards the city, and they decided to get on inner tubes and float down the river, and they had to get rescued right in front of the fire station. (laughs) Most of all the girls had a crush on Marty at one time. He was the kind of kid that you look twice at. He had the dark hair, and he was always tan, and he always had a smile. He wasn't a player that, you know, he he didn't go through girls or anything like that or lead them on. He was, he was one of the good guys. He wasn't in love until, you know, he had met Christina. We asked both Christina and Donna how they hoped people would remember Marty. Everybody who met Marty loved Marty. My entire family, all my siblings, my nieces and nephews, my parents, my grandparents, they all still kept communication with Marty. He was fun and funny and happy. And that's how they would all want Marty to be remembered as happy, full of life, always such a fighter. I mean, he's been through more stuff than most people ever have been through. Fighter, strong, happy, loving, caring, giving person. That's who Marty was. I want people to remember Marty by his smile and his easygoing nature. He was a very easygoing person. People out there in the world that, that were a part of Marty's life enjoyed his company. He always had a quick smile, and if you had a frown, he would always try to make you feel better. And You know, even with family, he, he always wanted the best for all of us. And I will cherish that forever. You know, I sometimes say, you know, what, what would Marty think? His opinion matters still to this day. Martin Richard Durham was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan on March 1, 1969. Marty was 46 years old when he was murdered. The family held a memorial service on Tuesday, May 26, where approximately 200 family and friends gathered to commemorate his life. The day before Marty's funeral, his daughter Jessica gave birth to her first child, a baby boy, whom she gave the middle name Martin. Though Marty is gone, what will continue to live on are the precious memories all of his loved ones have for him and will continue to carry with them in their hearts forever. When the sun
I'd like to give a special thank you to Christina and Donna for taking the time to talk to us and helping share Marty's story. Our hearts go out to both your families. I'd also like to thank Jess James, the Bird Whisperer, for giving us some insight on the behavior of African gray parrots. Finally, I'd like to thank Justin Rimmel, the host of the podcast Mysterious Circumstances, for helping us understand the weapon and ammunition used in this tragic case. We encourage you to learn more about Jess and Justin, and we'll include some links in our show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Criminology. Hi, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our true crime podcast, Criminology. In each season of Criminology, we take a deep dive to tackle some of the biggest cases in the history of true crime using classified police files and interviews with investigators, experts, victims, and survivors, all in an effort to accurately and completely examine the cases we cover. And season four of Criminology is out right now. We're taking on cases solved in 2018 using DNA with the help of resources like Parabon, GEDmatch, and Forensic Genealogy. And we've got some great interviews this season with people like Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer, Curtis Rogers, founder of GEDmatch, Steve Armantrout, the CEO of Parabon, and Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist who's had a hand in solving some of these cases. Past seasons of Criminology are available to binge, including in-depth coverage of the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy. New episodes drop Saturdays at 10 o'clock p.m., and you can find and subscribe to Criminology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And swindled. Five years ago Monday, a massive Ponzi scheme shocked the world, and we're not talking about Bernie Madoff. Here. He's dead. He, gets him hit. He, my he allegedly stole nine billion dollars. Over from a million dollars. Million dollars. Oh, I hate all of you. I hate you. He's the newest poster boy for everything that America seems to be really angry about. I want people to understand that I would never disrespect my God, my wife, or my children. Swindled is a true crime podcast about white-collar criminals, con artists, and corporate greed that proves that money truly is the root of all evil. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get your podcast. For more information about the show, visit swindledpodcast.com. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run